I want to jump right into some things this morning. I, I know uh, for some of you, we're just meeting for the first time. You're, I've, I haven't been here since you've started coming, but just take my word for it, I've come before. And uh, since, since you really didn't come for that, you just came for the word anyway, we're going to get along fine. But if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 14. Now, of course, if you didn't bring your Bible, you could have. But if you didn't, so, you know, they, techno- technology has helped you out, and so they, they'll have verses up on the... Uh, the screen for you. Praise the Lord Jesus. Man, I love you guys. And I really appreciate the fact that you show up. That's, that's good. Some of you have been in each of the services. You know, we started Friday night with uh, our first service this trip for me. How many of you have been at all of the services along with me? I've been at each and every one. And uh, glad you have too, some of you. But man, I'm glad you're here this morning anyway. But I want to talk to you about something today, a little bit of an odd subject, the way it, it starts out, at least it sounds odd, it's really not. But I want to talk to you about falling. And I want to talk to you about falling, and here's what I want to, to call it and talk to you about. I want to talk to you about falling into greatness. You know, sometimes, well, in fact, many times, People that we love and admire are people who themselves have fallen in one way or another. As a matter of fact, everybody you know, everybody I know, every believer that we meet, every leader that we listen to in one way or another has had their moments where they also have fallen. Now look, some falls are harder than others, some are more drastic than others, but the point is that Falling is not the end. And we're going to look at some examples. One particular guy, one of my favorite guys in the Bible. You've got to love Peter because he gives us so much material uh, that we can identify with so well. But I started meditating on this after reading something, a little bit of an odd uh, little deal I was reading at, at one stage. And it was really about the student of the trapeze. And I started to see something in how a student of the trapeze learns the skills of flying the high trapeze. They fly through the air with the greatest of ease, those crazy fools on the flying trapeze. It just seems, I don't know, that's not the song exactly, but uh, it just seems strange to me. I mean, I get the idea, you know, up on the, the altitude, 15, 20, 30 feet in the air and I get the idea of holding on to that little bar. I know I could do that. If I were up that high, I would hold on. (laughs) And they swing, but holding on is not the whole concept. It's the letting go. Now that part, I'm not clear about, but uh, the student has to learn not just how to hold on, but they have to learn how to let go. And you know where it goes from there, of course, they're going to turn and twist and grab that other bar, knowing by faith that it's going to be there. And then they do their tricks and twirls. How do they learn to let go at altitude? My gosh, man, that is crazy. 
But they do it with this confidence and with this grace and it seems like with this ease. How do they get to that point? Well, in reading about it, you come to realize and find out that the only way they learn to let go at altitude is that they learn how to fall. That's really some of the initial things that the student of the trapeze has to discover. They have to discover that they can fall and they're still going to be okay. Now, they don't use nets as much anymore, but at the time this article I was reading was written, they used a net to catch those, those trapeze students and even professionals. They have the net. How many of you have ever been to the big circus and seen what we're talking about here now? How many of you would admit it right here in church? Yeah, I know. Some people have a tough time with this stuff, but I've been to the circus a lot of times. In fact, just recently, I was at the Moscow Circus, just last November or sometime recently. It doesn't matter. It was not long ago. Anyway, I was back in Moscow with Rick Renner. I've mentioned him now three times in these meetings. We're friends, apparently. And... uh, But I was over there doing, you know, again, ministering. I'd been in Europe, in Germany, and in uh, Switzerland, and then went on to Moscow to minister uh, in uh, the great church there, Good News Church, right in the heart of Moscow. But we had a couple of extra days while I was there, and one day, Rick just said, you know what, let's go to the circus. I thought, man, this is great. I hadn't been to a circus in years. So we went to the Moscow Circus, right downtown, it's permanent location, right in the heart of Moscow, and... And now they don't use the net, and they did all kinds of crazy stuff, of course, you know, elephants and all the different things. But uh, in the, uh, the trapeze and the high-flying stuff, man, they, they now just use that safety wire sort of thing. They clip on and clip off, which is great. But uh, the concept stays the same. You've got to learn how to fall. And here's what that student learns. They learn that... They can swing up at high altitude and let go and fall and they are always going to be caught by the net or the wire. Always. And they're going to be safe. They're going to be caught by what I've called that grace net. The net that just catches a person when they fall and they're going to be all right. Now the student of the trapeze, the goal is is not for that student to learn how to fall, only the fall and learning to fall has a higher goal, and here's what they discovered, and it of course makes sense to all of us this way, you find out that the more you learn to fall in the right manner, the less you are afraid of the fall, and the more fearless that student becomes, the less they fall. And ultimately, the real goal of learning how to fall is to learn so that you don't fall. And that's really where this whole thing takes us. We learn how to fall. We learn the safety if we fall so that we become fearless and we fall less and less and less 
We stumble less. We trip up less. The real goal of the Christian is not just to stand up and fall down and stand up and fall down. That's only cute when it's a little tiny baby learning to take those first steps. Now, I do remember even back when my own daughter Jessica, now she's got her her own kids, three of them. Praise God, I'm a grandpa. In fact, I brought some home videos. Would you roll it? No, all right, not really. But uh, <laughs> but if you ask me later, I actually do have some handy. Thank God for technology and iPads. Anyway, but when Jessica was just small, we just couldn't wait for her to take those first steps. You just grab those little chubby arms and just begin. She would not like it if she were hear, hearing me say this. Uh, and if you tell her I said these things, I will deny it. But we'd grab those little chubby arms and we'd just walk her along. And it looked like she was actually taking steps. She, of course, wasn't. But she wanted to. And so every time it looked like she was taking steps, then we'd let go of those arms. She'd take a step. She did. And then, bam, down she went. Face first, right into the carpet, thankfully. We didn't try this on concrete. But... Uh, a funny thing about it, even after the fall, she just couldn't wait to get up and do it again. Fall didn't bother her. Doesn't bother those little toddlers. They just want to get up and do it again. And as a believer, there's something about discovering the safety of, that God has put into the times when we do fall that we don't have to feel like we are failing even in the fall. This, this is shocking information for some people. But you know, Christianity has been really kind of tough on a lot of people. <laughs> it's been really rough. Because so much Christianity has been inundated with guilt, condemnation, and manipulation that has kept people in line, theoretically, in all of the wrong ways. And so it really hasn't generated a life of faith or relationship, but it has kept people under control, at least to a certain degree. And control is what religion is all about. But that is not what relationship is all about. So let's look at Peter. Of course, we could look at a lot of people. You could look at Moses. Of course, not this Moses. But you could look at Moses in the Bible, although let's everyone look at Moses. <laughs> All right, not really. But uh, I know it's only starting, I guess. It's only starting. I'm sorry. But um, you could look at King David. He fell. You could look at Elijah. He had his moments. Or Elisha. He had his questionable moments. Or you could look at others all through the Bible, but Peter is so easy to just derive so many great things from that we're going to look at Peter today. So, have you found Matthew chapter 14 yet? That's all the time I'm going to give you. You've had ample time. Now it's my turn to find this scripture. But I brought my technology. Verse 28 is right in the middle of the situation where the disciples are crossing over the Sea of Galilee. 
in that boat and Jesus comes walking on the water to see him. This had to be an amazing sight. I mean, it's not every day. In fact, it's not any day that you see someone walking on the water towards you. But this is what the disciples saw. And when they saw it, it shocked them all. But then Peter, in the middle of that, of course, being Peter, he had a different take on it than all the rest of them that were in that ship with him. So here's what Peter says in verse 28. He answered Jesus and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. See, nobody else thinks like this. Only Peter seemed to be the guy thinking like this. The rest of the fellows seemed to be happy to be in the ship. They were happy to have fellowship. Come on, Ed, try to help me out because that is so darn corny and I've used it so many times. Anyway, and I'm probably going to do it again here, so just humor me and, and it'll pass quickly. But, um, but Peter wasn't like the rest of them. He didn't want to stay content to be in the boat. He said, Lord, you're out on the water. I want to be out there and do what you're doing. This is what really separated Peter in a lot of ways because he right away wanted to be doing what Jesus was doing. If this is you, I want to do that. And so Jesus didn't seem to be too uh, upset about that idea. The next word that comes out of his mouth is, come. That was it. That's what Peter asked for. If it's you, bid me to come. That's what Jesus did. Come. And so here, here it goes. Watch this. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on water to go to Jesus. This is, this is actually quite amazing. He actually walked. I know you've read this stuff, but man, I want this to sink in. This is no fantasy. This isn't a comic book story. This isn't a movie, man. This, this actually happened. Peter's out on water, walking on water with the Lord. Let me just ask you this. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. How many of you have ever really tried that? I just, you've tried. Come on, come on. You've tried. Only two honest people in the house. Uh, you've tried the walking on water. <laughs> yeah, now you guys have an advantage we don't have in Texas. Because you can walk on water every winter. But uh, well, this was not a winter event. All right, I'll just tell you, I have too. I have tried. In fact, I was right there at the Sea of Galilee. I thought if there's any place on earth, this might work out well. Let's do it right here, man. I was standing almost right where they were, man. I was right in Capernaum. And there was this little area there. Well, it was just outside of Capernaum if we want to get technical, but you don't care. So uh, there was this little area there. A lot of people would have been around, but they were all busy. It seemed like nobody was really paying attention to me. Everybody was kind of walked away. I was with several people, and uh, they were doing something else. So I thought, you know, let's just see what you got. So, you know, I just took a moment, I slipped off the tennis shoes and socks and rolled up the cuffs and decided I'd take a step. Right down to the bottom. It, it was weeks later before it really struck me that 
It could be the taking off the tennis shoes and socks and rolling up the cuffs gave a little hint as to what I actually expected to have happen. I didn't see that for weeks. Some of us are slower than others. I identify so well with Peter. Although he walked, he did this. So anyway, I'm still at it. But uh, I'll come up here next winter maybe. No, I won't. But uh, I've done that, actually. I've been up here in the winter, and I have walked on water. So you don't have anything on me. Anyway, back to the Bible. So here's what happens. You know what happens. The Bible goes on and says that when he, Peter, saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O ye of little faith. (laughs) That that always bugs me, actually. Because if walking on the water is a part of little faith, I think we all have to really re-examine things. O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased. There's a couple of observations in all of this that I want to point out to you, and I know you've read through this before and heard maybe lots of things, I know I have, about these events, and they're all, they're all great. But there's a couple of observations that I just want to make, and I want to ask you. Of course, we know Peter, we read here, Peter did walk on the water. But it was the wind being boisterous that seemed to get his attention. And caused him to be distracted and ended up beginning to sink. What was it about the wind, really, when you think about it, that really made any difference at all? Here was something that was totally irrelevant to the situation. I mean, do you think that you would do better walking on calm water than on bumpy water? How many of you think it would be easier to walk on calm water? Well, let me just assure you that the day I was given this my shot, it was quite calm. It didn't help me at all. I think calm water is just as unstable as bumpy water. I think you are as likely to sink in calm water as you are in rough water. I have swam in rough water and I have swam in calm water. And in both cases, I had to hold my breath when I was under it. Am I moving too fast for you here? The wind was totally irrelevant to what was going on for people. How many times are we distracted by things that are actually completely irrelevant to what we're dealing with and the situation we're in? How many times do we let what people think, for example, move us in one direction or another? Here's a shocking thing. We make so many decisions based on what people think. And many times it's people we don't even know. It's just what they think. Whoever they are, we we don't even know who they are. What are they going to think? What are people going to think? Here's the real truth of it. People seldom do think at all. But if 
just perchance they do think, you can be relatively sure they're not thinking about you. So why are we making so many decisions based on what they are going to think when they don't think very often and when they do? It's not about you anyway. Now that may sound just a little bit aloof for you, but it's just the way it is. Peter sank because he got distracted by something that was totally irrelevant to the situation. So let's not do the same thing. Let's not let whatever it is that typically distracts us. A lot of times it is other people's situation one way or the other that distracts us. There can be other things too, but whatever it is that distracts us, the distractions actually are irrelevant to the situation of standing in faith in God and we can wise up just based on finding out what, how it went for Peter. He was distracted by the wind. He sank. He seemed to be doing all right, walking. The only guy walking on water other than Jesus. And yet he sank. But here's another observation I want to I point out to you. And, and to do it, just, just think about this question. How long how, or how much time do you think actually passes between beginning to sink and being sunk? There's really not a lot of time, I don't think. I don't think there was a lot of time involved here. He began to sink. That was just a split second away from being sunk. But in that moment of time, Peter knew enough to look in the right direction, call on Jesus, and give it all the theology he needed. Lord, help! That's not heavy theology, man, but that is all the theology you really need. Lord, help! And what did he get? Immediately, Jesus responded to his situation. Glory to God. So beginning to sink, and yet before being sunk, he cried out to the Lord, and Jesus immediately stretched out his hand, lifted him up, and they walked back to the ship. He's back on top. And the Lord's instructing him on the way. (laughs) But he didn't let him just drown out there or flounder around in the water. He was ready to lift him up. See, God will lift you up and then help you understand how to solve situations. Rather than what some people think and their theology really feeds, the idea that God will just let you flounder around out there because after all, you deserve it anyway. You worm. You insect. You lower than low. You know, some people's viewpoint of the way God views them is so warped that they believe that God basically will let them just flounder in alone even though they need God and are looking to Him just because they deserve it for whatever goof-up they've been involved in. That's just not the way God thinks. Immediately, Jesus was reaching out to Peter, lifted him up. And he'll be that quick with you if you'll allow it. But now, a lot of people never, never really go through any of this, and they don't really need to. I mean, think about all those guys in the ship. They weren't having any problems at all, no crisis, no distractions. They were just happy to be in the boat. They didn't step out on anything. 
You know, you have far fewer problems of this nature if you'll just always play it completely safe. The problem is, you don't have nearly as many testimonies. Christianity gets so boring for some people because they do so little. They listen to nothing that God says. They're just happy to be in the boat. Oh, is that you, Jesus? Well, just walk on by. Just so we know. All right, we're glad it's you. Have a nice walk. They're happy to just keep rowing. Peter was different than the rest. He wanted out there where the action was. And while, you know, we've given Peter a lot of abuse over the years, over him sinking and all these things, but hey man, he was where the action is. What kind of Christian are you? (laughs) Just being a fellow in the ship, content with your fellowship. There it is again. I had to throw it in one more time. Uh, Is not the total answer. God hadn't just called us to fellowship with each other. Just hang out. Just show up to church. Just be a good church-going person. As long as you're a good church-going person and you sit in the pew, which we have none of those here, but if you just sit there and, you know, that you'll get by. That's not the point. God had bigger things for Peter and the rest of them. And God's got bigger things for us also. There was another situation. We're going to look at two more situations with Peter, though, where he fell, but... He was up again. He's gone from flying high to sinking fast, but he wasn't out. That's what happened even in what we just read. He was flying high in the sense that he's walking on water. But he did fall. But he fell into the net of God's grace. That is such a strong message. But it's just a couple of chapters later. Turn over to chapter 16. And in this chapter, we have really the events that took place when the apostles and Jesus were having a conversation and Jesus was was asking them some questions. You know, Jesus used questions in a very powerful way. He asked the right questions to help people locate themselves. Now, we understand that God does not ask questions in order to gain information. How many of you are clear on that? You know, he asked Adam a question all the way back in the garden. Adam, where are you? Did it ever occur to you that Adam had dodged God and God didn't know where he was? And yet God did ask the question, Adam, where are you? Why would God ask a question like that? He knows the answer. Adam had to be be able to locate himself. Where are you? And what have you done? He said, he said, here I am. What are you doing? He said, I'm hiding. Yeah. <laughs> He'd never had somebody to play the game with before. <laughs> he didn't know the rules. <laughs> when you're hiding, you don't tell. Why? Because you're hiding. But he had never had a playmate before. He had to learn the rules. Where are you? I'm here. What are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? He said, I was afraid. See what this has done? It located what was really going on. Why were you afraid? What have you done? 
God brought him to a place. Boy, there's a message in there. We ought to just go down that one. Jesus, though, he asked some questions of the disciples, just as powerful. Watch this. Verse 16. Now, let's start in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he said, Some say you are, or they said, Some say you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, just for a moment, let's take a little, little detour, just a, a real short one. But this really is quite amazing that they had that as an answer. Now, of course, this isn't what those disciples believed. But that's, this is the conversation or things that they were hearing being said in Jerusalem about Jesus. This is really shocking when you realize what it indicates. You see, Israel had embraced a lot of crazy doctrine. God bless the Romans, you know, and the Italians. The Romans are the Italians, you get that part. And the Romans were in a time of occupation there in Israel. Centurions and all of the guards and this sort of thing. So they were under some Roman authority at that time. And the Romans, God bless them, man, they had brought not only their government, but all their demons with them. And uh, really had begun to infiltrate the doctrinal beliefs of Israel where they had finally... They were embracing astrology and, and uh, reincarnation, and that's really what this is indicating. Israel had embraced reincarnation. Now, just for clarity's sake, the Bible does not teach reincarnation. You're not coming back as a bug or a cow, which personally I think is reason enough to give your life to Jesus right there. <laughs> But they had embraced all kinds of things, even the synagogues. I mean, if you were to go to some of the synagogues in Israel today, you would find astrological signs and a variety of different things that pointed to different kinds of gods. And yet that is not the root of, of what Israel was founded on. They were founded on the covenant that God made with Abram. At any rate, that's what the, that's what the opinions included Jesus was a reincarnation of one of the great prophets of old. What do men say? But then he asked this second question. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? One day that struck me so strong. What Jesus had just done. He had really helped them and helped us See how important it is that we embrace the truth even in the face of all kinds of contradictory information. What does the world say? What do you say? He expects it to be different. What does the world say about the economy? What are you saying about your economy? He expects it to be different. What does the world say about the situation of the world? What do you say? He expects it to be different. Faith sounds so different from unbelief or religion. It just sounds totally different. It has a different take on things. 
And that's what Jesus expects. He expected it of them. And this is when Peter gave his first and most powerful revelation of his life. At that time, he announced it, and for the first time ever, it was said to answer that question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus went on to say to him, blessed are you, verse 17, Simon bar Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Glory to God. Man, Peter is flying. He has received revelation from his heavenly Father. He now has the accolades of Jesus right there where all of his other friends could hear it. Well done, Peter. Oh, you know he felt good about himself. He's flying. You know, it feels good to feel good. I prefer it over feeling bad. I really do. But we can't let it affect our faith one way or the other. Because it's not about feelings. But Peter was feeling good. But his sense of handling things so well and speaking just the right things seemed to have done something to him real quick. It's something strange. Because in a moment, Jesus began to describe things that were going to happen in just a few days, really. How Jesus would be arrested. And how he would be brought to trial. And how those kangaroo courts would would find him guilty of trumped-up charges and how they would execute and murder him. He began to tell all of this. Drop down to verse 21 and see how Peter handles this information. Verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and then be raised on the third day. Watch verse 22. Here it is. Then Peter took him, Jesus, aside and what? And began to... (laughs) What? He began to rebuke the Lord. Peter. Peter was flying high. But what he didn't realize quite yet is he is falling fast. Because somewhere he got it in his mind that with all of the revelation apparently that he had received, He needed to straighten Jesus out on some thinking. He began to rebuke the Lord. Now, I'm not sure how long maybe you personally have been a Christian. Some of you have been at it a long time, like I have. Others may be newer to it all. But here's something I think comes clear pretty quickly. But it wasn't yet clear for Peter. That as a believer and in your relationship, no doubt there is going to be some rebuking go on at some stage. But here's what we have to maintain. Jesus will always end up as the rebuker. And you, my friend, will be the rebukee. Let's just go ahead and settle that now. If anything needs to be corrected, it's going to be coming from God to us. It's really not going to be coming from us to God. That doesn't seem like something we should have to point out. 
But it would have helped Peter if we would have pointed it out. Just a little ahead of what he did here in verse 22. He began to rebuke the Lord and listen to what he said. He said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen. One translation says, we will not allow these things to happen to you. He rebuked the Lord. What he really did was he put Jesus in a point of true temptation. Because all of a sudden now, there was a new option facing Jesus to fulfilling this plan that he knew he had come to fulfill, to give his life and to go through the very things that he had described. But Peter had offered him an option. He had offered him an out. It was a point of temptation. The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted in every point just like we are. And look where this temptation came from. It came from someone that was one of the closest people to him. That's where a lot of temptation can come from. People that are close to us. Well-meaning people. People that love us. People that maybe have an interest in us, but they don't see what God has said to us. They don't know some of the intricacies, so they just say stuff, thinking it surely is going to help. No doubt Peter thought he was going to help the Lord, and it didn't help at all. And I think Peter got another revelation real quick, actually. It just came in, in, a, in a split second almost with the next words that came out of Jesus' mouth. Verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. How many of you think Peter got a new revelation right then? He had been flying high. But now he had gone from blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah to get behind me Satan. And he had done it really all by himself. Now look. Jesus was not calling Peter Satan. Don't get derailed by all of that. It was all about the temptation. Jesus shows us exactly how to deal with temptation. He, he targeted the temptation. Now it came out of Peter, but it, Jesus knows how this goes. It was all about what Satan wanted to do to derail Jesus. So Jesus deals with that instantly. Calls it what it is. Declares exactly what needed to be declared took authority over Satan, and shut the temptation down in an instant. Boy, we could learn from that. Too many times people just want to mess with the temptation and ponder the possibilities, and consider the consequences. That rarely happens, actually. But uh, Jesus just shut it down instantly, which I'm sure is part of the key as to why he never sinned. But then he did say this to Peter. He said, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Another translation says, you stand right in my path when you see things from man's point of view and not from God's. That was the real point, and that was the real problem. Peter was just looking at things from his own point of view, and he wasn't considering what Jesus had said that it could possibly be the real plan. Now we can learn from this. Because Peter was flying high, but his own thinking took him down the wrong path. And rather than stay focused on what Jesus said, 
He got focused on the emotion of what it looked like that might mean. How is it ever going to be that Jesus is going to get killed? That's going to wreck everything I've given the last three years of my life for. See, those disciples didn't yet really have a clue what was going on. You know, it wasn't wasn't ten years after Jesus was raised from the dead before the disciples even understood that the gospel was for anybody but Jews. He would not... Peter would not have preached the gospel to me. I'm from Irish descent. The barbarians, as I learned, standing right here. (laughs) And I've been grateful ever since. Because the Irish are in the Bible. All right, you had to be there. But... um, Colossians 3, 11, if you have any interest in that. All right. Jesus not only pointed things out, but revealed this to Peter. You can fly high, fall fast, and yet not be out. Peter wasn't out of the club. Jesus didn't throw him out as a disciple, say, that's it, Peter. You're not going to listen to me any better than that. You need to just go find another church. (laughs) Now, he was still in. But Jesus told him the truth. You stand right in my way. You're not really becoming a part of the answer. You're remaining a part of the problem. When you see things only from man's point of view and not from God. He was flying high, but he fell fast. And yet he was caught in the net of God's grace. But I want to take a look at a third event, really a far, far more serious situation in Peter's life. And it happened just shortly after these events we've just read. But I want to take this one from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. The very events that Jesus had described to Peter and that Peter was not happy about, now in Luke 22, those events are happening. Jesus has been arrested in verse 54. Watch this. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. Now watch this next line. Peter followed at a distance. I want you to notice that terminology. Because that's what we want to park on here. This is what I call the first step on the road of denial. We're going to see how this plays out in Peter. But the details are kind of important here. So I want you to stay, stay locked in on this. Here's what he said, or what the scripture says. Peter followed at a distance. Now look, he, Jesus is being arrested. We understand what's going on. Peter is following, but this is dangerous. They may tag him. Because now the consequence of all of these things they have been believing are starting to look pretty serious. Jesus is being arrested. So Peter, out of self-preservation, he's following at a distance. But look, man, it was just a few hours before this that Peter was in the garden of prayer with the Lord 
when he was arrested, in fact, it was just not even hours before, it was just minutes before, and Peter was ready to fight to the death. He pulled out a sword, man. He's ready to tangle. Now, though, something happened. He's following at a distance. Now, here's the, here's the thing I want you to, to lock in on with this and understand. Sometimes this very thing happens for people today. Events happen. Situations come up. They become disappointed, maybe offended, hurt in one way or another, and they begin to follow. At a distance. Sometimes you can even see it. Now, this isn't true every place, so don't get, get overly personal, uh, take this overly personal, but sometimes in some church settings, you've got people that are front row type Christians. That's how I've been since I got saved. Now, I want it right up front, I want it in on the action, right where you are. Not that you can't get in the action in the back, don't get me wrong, but just follow this idea because I've watched it actually happen. Where people that were very much front row type people, right up front, something starts to go south or sideways in their life and they literally, and I have seen it literally, begin to change seats and move further to the back. Now, Not that there's huge significance on whether you're sitting up front or back there where you, my brother, are sitting now. We trust there's no significance to it other than it's just, you're all right. All right, I'm messing with you. But for some people, truly, man, they've been up front, hot for God or cold for God. You had to be here for another, at another service to catch that one. But, uh, but then something goes sideways. Somebody doesn't shake their hand right. Somebody kind of says something at church that sort of, well, what was that all about? And, and suddenly, man, they just begin to, you know, get a little more distance. Oh, I'm not offended. But they begin to get a little more distance. Now, it's not always in where people sit, but it is kind of humorous sometimes where, where you sit because you're sitting most likely in the seat you were sitting in last time you were here. Maybe not, but for some, you could take roll. As if we had a seating chart for some, because they're always in the same. You've sat in that seat. Did you buy that chair? You bought it, see? We might as well put your name on that chair right now. It's already on there. You've stuck it up under side. Yeah, nobody knows. Anyway, I'm not messing with your seat. I'm glad you're there. I, I, Man, I realized long ago I ain't messing with you at all about anything. I like your hat, by the way, I do. Just do what you can, you know. Yeah, I'm on. Just try to pull out whatever you can. So, uh, yeah, I've going to keep my distance. <laughs> Peter started to follow at a distance. I feel the distance right now. <laughs> he started, oh man, talk about going sideways. This whole message is going, all right, I'm coming over here, man. I'm brave. I ain't afraid of you. (Laughter) 
Sometimes people, they have all kinds of reasons, excuses. Well, really, only reasons, but no excuse for getting this distance in their walk with God over crazy stuff. Peter was following at a distance. But it turned into something far more serious even than that. In verse 55, the next verse, it says, Now when they kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Who's, whose fire is this? It's in the disciples. These are the people that have arrested Jesus. These are the ones that have come as a part of the whole plot to murder Jesus. These are not friends of the cross. These are not people that are interested in the Lord. These are the ones that wanted Him dead. And what does Peter do? He wants to blend in. He wants to sit among them. He wants to be accepted at the wrong fire. He had no business at this fire. But he sat there because he wanted to blend. Sometimes you, we've just got to take inventory. Who are we hanging with? What kind of influences are important to us at this stage in our life? You know, there is a scripture. Uh, a lot of people don't like this one. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three. In one translation simply says it this way, that bad company corrupts good morals. Now, a lot of times we don't like to think that's true, but we all know it is true. And some of you were actually the bad company that was corrupting other people's good morals. Okay, you look really holy right now, and I'm glad. But, you know, there was time. That was, that was really my own story. I was, I was the bad company at one stage, you know, that had people read that, they would have stayed away from me too. And I don't blame them. But here's the real deal, man. The people that we do allow ourselves and, and that we do get around, we're either changing them or they're changing us. We have to understand these things. And I'm not talking about some kind of elitist kind of Christianity where we're too good for the rest of people and all that kind of nonsense. That has nothing, uh, no place in any of this. We're not talking about that at all. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that it's important that we are around those who will build our life and our faith and we can build them rather than trying to blend in with those that really are not helping the situation and we're not helping theirs. Sometimes we just want to blend in with those where there'll be no responsibilities, no sense of having to do anything or be anything. And yet God's called us to something to bring influence. So we're either bringing it or we're being influenced. All right, well, I'm glad you're excited about all this. But Peter began to sit among them. But it even went further. You know it did, but watch this. Verse 56, it says, A certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him, Jesus. And here it is, verse 57. But Peter denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And that was the first of three denials. And the Lord was within hearing distance 
of that conversation. And the very thing that Jesus had foreseen, the thing Peter refused to believe, that before the sun comes up, you'll deny me. Now Peter had done it three times. Three times. And something happened to Peter. Same thing that would happen to anybody that had stepped over a line that they had believed they would never be able to step over. That's really what happens to people many times. You know, Satan doesn't tell us what it's going to be like on the other side of that line of compromise and sin. He doesn't tell us what's going to happen inside of us. And he sure doesn't tell us what he himself is going to do the moment we step across that line. Because the very one who will tempt you is the same one that will hammer you the moment you act on what he has described and tempted you with. There is no loyalty in the kingdom of darkness. Are you kidding me? He hates you. He hates everybody. Satan hates everyone, no matter how much they serve him. There are people that have given their whole life to serve Satan's causes with diligence and loyalty and Satan will drag their soul to hell right along with him. There is no sense of loyalty or comradeship or brotherhood. Are you kidding? It's just a farce. But you don't know that until after the fact. When Peter stepped across this line, he had done something that never seemed like a possibility. He couldn't deny the Lord. He had given everything to Jesus. He had walked in the toughest times. He had had his ups and downs, but he was the guy that was there. He was in on the action. He was the Peter of Peter, James, and John. He's the guy that's in there, man. And yet... Now he has denied the Lord. And Jesus heard it. He ran from that place. Oh, it's as if he had ruined everything. And he couldn't get it back. How can I ever get it back? He would have been convinced there was no getting it back. The Lord heard him say every word. He couldn't describe it. He couldn't try to spin it. It's just, it's out there. He can't fix it. And he was right. He can't fix it. He had stepped over the line. Peter did something, though, and to his credit, it turned out to be something real important. He ran from that place of compromise and sin. But amazingly, he ran back to the disciples. This is amazing. See, a lot of people wouldn't do that. They run from God, from church, from Christians... If they see a, a Christian, they see Pastor Jonathan walking down the street and they're walking toward him, they'll cross the street and hope they didn't get seen. They don't want to have to confront anything, hear anything. Why? Because they know that they know, man, they have crossed the line. They don't want to have to deal with it. They can't get it back. So let's just sweep it under the rug and run as far as we can away. But Peter didn't do that. Now, Judas did. You know, Judas betrayed the Lord. But Peter also betrayed the Lord. 
Judas, though, he didn't run back to the disciples. He ran out to his own property that he had bought with stolen money and hung himself out there. Peter went back to the disciples. But though he was there with them, he didn't feel like he was one of them. And that's really what sin does to a person. And until we really deal with it and lay hold on God's righteousness in our life, we'll deal with it also. We won't feel like we kind of have it going for us the way some of these other people around here seem to. There's some people that are just so out there, man, love Jesus, shout and praise God, just like you. And uh, are we friends? Are we doing all right? All right, good, praise God. A little insecurity there I had to work out. But uh, I'm over it. So... Uh, but other people come to church, they don't feel like they're, they've really got it going. They feel like the outsider. They're there, but they're not really, they're not really part of the insiders. And you know, some churches, they do make it. Churches can be tough places. I've said that, I think, in every service now. And I don't, I don't say that because I think that here. It's just uh, I've been around churches enough. And you find out, man, it can be tough places because some Christians, it's very, they can be clicky. They can be very, you know, just hard to, hard to feel included and it's not always the click it's just people being people people like to talk to people that they know but man kind of breaking into that that can be tough and so people come to church some of them come for a long time never feel like they're really a part and sadly there's people all over the place feel the same way at the same time in the same church Peter was among the disciples, but he didn't feel like a disciple anymore. He had disqualified himself. That's what he would have thought. That's what Satan would tell anybody, and that's what Satan told him. He was now disqualified. He can, he can sit with them. He can, he can be in on whatever they're doing, have their conversations. But they don't know what he knows about himself. Now, he wasn't telling them, but he knew inside. He didn't measure up. He had done something that there was no getting back from. But then it happened. You've got to see this. Turn to the Gospel of Mark. You still with me? In the Gospel of Mark, an event happened that transformed and changed everything. Not only for us and everyone, it specifically targeted Peter in a way that you have got to see. Mark chapter 16 and verse 6. This is on the heels of those women that went to the tomb resurrection morning. They went to prepare the body of Jesus for permanent burial. When they came into that tomb, you know, they didn't find the body of Jesus. No, they found an angel of God. And this angel had something to say. Now watch this. He said to them, verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, he who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And no doubt that angel just pointed right to the spot. And these ladies, they were, they were stunned. Mouth probably hanging open at what was going on here. But then here it is, watch this. That angel goes on and says this. But go, tell his disciples, here it is, and Peter. 
that He's going before you into Galilee. And there you will see Him as He said to you. All of a sudden, those two words, and Peter, changed everything. He thought he was disqualified, which is why the angel of the Lord had to say it just this way. Because had the, had the Lord simply said, tell all the disciples to meet me, Peter would have disqualified himself in his own head. Yeah, that's for them, but it's not for me. This is what people do today. The same thing. It's for them, it's not for me. This works for some, but man, I've never seen any of this stuff work. I've never seen any of this make all this kind of difference. These people, they, they get stuff. I don't get it. Peter wouldn't have got it either. He felt disqualified. Because of what he had done. But the angel of the Lord came with these two words that changed it. It was inescapable. It was so clear. Whatever had been done didn't seem to change things like I thought it did. I thought I was on the outside, but listen, I'm still an insider. I'm still welcomed. I'm still a part. Tell the disciples and Peter. The moment Peter heard his name, he took off running for the tomb to go and see for himself. John did too. John being younger outran him. Got there first. But it didn't bother Peter. He got there. Glory to God. And the things that the Lord had said would have all come rushing back into Peter's head. And what that angel reminded him, the Lord said he wanted to see us. The Lord said things about the way it would be after he was raised up. I didn't even believe that. I told him we weren't going to let those things happen to him. But now he gets it. The Lord has been raised up. And he wants to meet not just with the others. He still wants to meet with me. He was in. He was in full strength. This is God's word to you and me today. You can put your name in there just like, just like Peter's. Tell all the disciples. And tell Dennis. And tell Ron. Tell Tina. Tell Brownie. That the things the Lord has said, they hadn't passed. They hadn't been ruined. You aren't disqualified. Things you've done hasn't changed it. These words are eternal. The things that we do go up and down. We may be flying one day and fall in the next, but we fall into the net of God's grace. And that grace does not change because we dropped into it. That grace just stays strong in us because now we're in the net. It's not based on having done it all right. You don't know anybody that's done it all right. There is nobody that's done it all right other than Jesus Himself. So we're in that net. Instead of staying down, staying fallen, feeling broken and struggling over things that you've done. We tie into what God has done. 
and he raises us up. Let me close it with this statement from the book of Micah. Oh, you love this one. The book of Micah. He's one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Minor only because he wrote less than major prophets. How could you be minor and be a prophet? That doesn't work. But they call them minor prophets just because these books are a little bit shorter. Micah chapter 7. Are you there yet? This is a good time for your table of contents. If you're in the New Testament, you're way off. There's red letters. Just go a little bit left. Micah, I want you to see this. You're going to want to put stars and arrows and underlines and colors around this one. Now, if you can't write in your Bible, I understand. Just put it on the shelf, then go buy one you can. And then you're going to want to look this one up. This could be the first thing you actually tag in your Bible. Watch this one, Micah chapter 7. Are you there yet? I want to give you plenty of time. You're going to like this one. And verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. Glory to God. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Satan, do not rejoice over me. I may have been flying high, but I fell fast. I was sinking, but I cried out. God raised me up. Don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Satan, I've got you right where I want you. When I fall, not if I fall, but when I fall, God already knew you would. He may have not had planned these details for you. You know, a lot of people are very creative in the way they fall all by themselves. For a lot of people, Satan doesn't even have to get involved. He just gets informed after the fact. Just take a little credit. But it's not, it's in God's mind, He even knows. It's not if, it's just when. When I fall, I will rise. When I fall, I do just what Peter did. Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, I'm not spending another moment like this. I'm not going to live with that kind of anger or live in that kind of compromise. You say, yeah, but you've been done it 25,000 times. Here's how God looks at this. This is amazing truth. This is, this is a stretch for a lot of us, but God doesn't keep count. God doesn't even keep records. This is shocking to some people. Because we're just so ready for, to have to stand before that judgment seat and God just hammer away at us and us feel bad because everybody in heaven may be seeing this. But here's what the Bible does tell us. He said, I will remember your sins no more. How does that work? Apparently, it's like a delete button. You ever deleted something you didn't really intend to delete? You ever reformat something that didn't need reformatting? Oh, what just happened? Holy smoke, where'd it go? Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Come on, you ever pray to your computer? (laughs) Don't do that. Come back. (laughs) It don't matter. 
Computers seem to have no mercy. <laughs> nor grace. Yeah. Nor love. That's just my personal experience, I guess. But here's how it goes in God. He seems to have a permanent delete button himself. He said, I will remember your sin no more. He didn't just say that once. He, this is over and over. Different ways, different manner. Jesus said things just like this in the, in the Gospels. Paul talks about righteousness from that point of view. The quotes come in the book of Hebrews. The very same statement. God said, I will remember your sins no more. What does all that mean? That means that though you may have done what should disqualify a person, in Christ Jesus, you remain qualified. You've been caught in the net. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, God's going to slam the door shut and lock you in that darkness. No, that is not right. Well, that's how some people think it plays out. No. He said, when you sit in darkness, how'd you get in that darkness? That's not the point. That's not the issue right now. When you sit in darkness, whatever the details are, the Lord said He would be your light. He'll show you the path out. He'll brighten the whole thing. He'll remove that depression off of you. He'll bring the light of His Word into your life. And suddenly, even though it doesn't look like you have any reason to feel better about the situation, the light of God just lifted you up. You walk in victory, though others around you would think you ought to still be feeling bad about what you did and the way things went. You need to, you need to feel bad a lot longer. As if feeling bad or badly is going to make any difference at all. He said, don't rejoice over me, Satan. When I fall, I will arise. Now I want you to stand up with me. We're going to do some rising up. Because no doubt there's people in this room that have done some falling down. See, all of a sudden, it what does he know? <laughs> oh, I know a lot. I know a lot about every single one of you. I do. I know, I know things about every single one of you. No, not things that I got through conversation. <laughs> not even things that I got in prayer. Just things about people. And you're one of them. You look so much like a people. <laughs> that I know things about you too. And I know that there have been times that you have fallen, times that you have failed, times that people have reminded you about those failings. I know that there have been times when you felt disqualified from receiving the things from God that God offered. I know there's times when Satan's done his best to bombard you with your inadequacy with your compromise. And you begin to sink under the load of all of it. Anyone would. But here's what we learned from Peter today. We learned that in a moment's time, 
you may have been sinking, but you'd be walking on top of things once again. And the Lord will instruct you, no doubt about it. He'll talk to you about what brought all that on. Sure, you want that. He doesn't leave you to do it again. He stays with you so that that thing gets turned around in your life. But he doesn't alienate you because of these kinds of things. When we fall, we're rising up.